congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what would it be like to be stuck for a very, very long time in a space with only your immediate family and a bunch of animals? Now, I think normally it would be hard to imagine that, but lately I think we could perhaps muster up a little bit more empathy for what Noah and his family had to go through. They went through it for about a year, so we haven't even come close to it. And their isolation, of course, was a lot more radical than ours. And so this this morning we, we deal with the third Toledote in the book of Genesis. As you remember that the Toledote describes the, the fallout, the, the, the consequences, what happened in and because of the, the life of the named person or thing. So the first Toledote was the, after Genesis uh, chapter 1 was the introduction, the first Toledote was the Toledote of the heavens and the earth. So what happened? What was the story? And we know in that first Toledote what happened. There was a there was the fall, Genesis 3. There was the, the murder of brother by brother in the first generation. And it just got worse and worse. More and more violence and immorality and adultery. Uh, until the seventh generation, Lamech is living with two women and, and killing people for offending him. So the world is sophisticated and proud and arrogant and and is a leader in all kinds of technology and, and arts. And the church at the end of the first Toledote is just a bunch of insignificant people that are just, their main claim to fame is that they're humbly depending on the Lord. They're calling upon the name of the Lord. Then we get to the second Toledote, the, the Toledote of Adam. And we see that as this traces the, the holy line, we see that whereas the, the world and the, the seed of the serpent in their seventh generation, there's the, the flowering, the full flowering of violence and immorality in the holy line, the seventh from Adam is Enoch. And he walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. So there, there is hope there. There is hope for sinners before a holy God. But at the end of this second Toledote, which is the first few verses of chapter 6, we see it's not all good news. By the time we get down to the 10th generation from Adam, which is the generation of Noah, the church is losing the plot. They're starting to mix with the world. And this mixture of the two seeds, this despising of this holy enmity which God has placed between the church and the world, that leads to a lot of wickedness, a lot of evil continually, says the Lord in the heart of man. And the question is, as we get to the end of the second Toledote, chapter 6, verse 1 through to 8, the question is, what's going to happen to the promise of God? What's going to happen to the promise of the Messiah, the, the serpent crusher? Because once again, it seems that everyone's going to end up on the, on the dark side, on the serpent's side. And then we have a few notes of hope. In chapter 5, verse 29, we, we read about the birth of Noah, that he will bring relief, that he will bring, bring rest. And then we have that note of hope at the very end of the second Toledot. Look at that, chapter 6, verse 8. There's all this wickedness, all world's full of wickedness. But look at 6, verse 8. But Noah 
found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor here is the word for grace, sovereign grace. So in other words, it wasn't because Noah was such a good guy in himself. It's because God mercifully put his grace upon Noah. And it wasn't by chance that it was Noah. Noah is from the line of the woman, the holy seed, the line of the Messiah. God said he would keep it. And he does, despite the best attempts of sinful man and the devil to destroy this line. So we come to the third Toledot, which is our text for this morning. And there's a lot in this Toledot, as we noticed when we read it. But I thought I would try to do it all in one sermon, just kind of concentrate on the, on the big picture. So we won't go through verse by verse. We don't have the ability to do that in one service. But there's, there's an overarching theme and, and lesson, I think, that we can draw from our text this morning. The first thing that I wanted to draw your attention to, and the children will know that there's a bunch of words starting with R that I'll draw attention to. The first one is the historical record. The scriptures, also in Genesis 1 through 11, have the characteristic of historical record. That's important. This is not some... Christian or Jewish version of the ancient Babylonian or Sumerian myths, the origin myths. This is the Word of God. This is God speaking to His people and telling them how it is, what happened, what He did. There is no hermeneutical, there's no exegetical, there's no reason whatsoever from the text to draw a line anywhere in Genesis 1 through to 11, between history and myth. The Holy Scripture presents Genesis 12 as history, Genesis 11, Genesis 10, all the way to Genesis 1 as recorded history. And the Lord Jesus, when he was on earth, speaks about it as historical fact. Look at Matthew chapter 24, for instance. If you turn quickly in your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, And here the Lord Jesus says, speaking about the coming judgment, he speaks about a prior judgment. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The Lord Jesus refers to Noah and the flood as historical. And the other New Testament writers do the same thing. For instance, in Luke chapter 3, verse 36, Luke puts Noah in the list of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ, a historical person. And if you look at the the Toledot itself that we read together, You notice, I hope you noticed, how specific it was in terms of dates. It gives the the month, and it gives the the year, and then the month, and it gives the the day. The only thing missing is the time of day. You notice it a whole bunch of times. Look at, for instance, chapter 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old. Look at verse 11, the second month, 17th day of the month. Look at 8, verse 4. Um, 8 verse 4 says, and in the seventh month, and the 17th day of the month. So these are historical 
records. And you don't see these kind of date and time references in the ancient origin myths or flood myths from the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. They have a totally different character. And then finally, we see in this Toledo that there are real building instructions given. For instance, there's a, an ancient uh, epic called the Gilgamesh epic, which includes the, the flood account from the Babylonians. And in that epic, the, it speaks about the, the hero of, of the flood story building a, a, a kind of an ark. But he built it in seven days. It's, it's massive. It could never have been built in seven days. And then it's a, it's a perfect cube which in a great storm would just flip and flop all over the place and kill everybody inside. Whereas the, the ark that Noah builds here, according to the instructions from God, has the dimensions of a very large cargo ship and the navigability and the stability in water and in storms of a very well-built ship. So These are not marks of myth. These are marks of historical record. The building of the ark is... Uh, the, the length of the ark, for those of you who know a little bit about hockey, is about two and a half times the length of a regulation NHL hockey rink. So it's quite long. It's about 510 feet long, 85 feet wide, and 51 feet high. Its volume is about 1.5 million cubic feet. So you could store the volume of 450 semi-trailers inside this ark. It's a big, sufficiently big ship, and it's built in dimensions that are eminently seaworthy. So it's historical record is the first thing that I want to draw your attention to. We live in a world where you'll go to university, and if you tell people that you believe in Noah being a real person and the flood being a real thing, they will laugh in your face. Because people have this image that they see on the wallpaper of little kids' bedrooms, this tiny little ark with a giraffe sticking out of the window. And they have no idea of what the Scripture actually teaches about the dimensions and character of the ark. So it's historical record. And the second thing that I want to draw your attention to from the text is that the, the Toledot of Noah describes a world which is rotten, which is ruined. We saw that in the end of the, the preceding Toledot already, chapter 6, verse uh, 6, the Lord regretted he had made man. It grieved him to his heart. Look at the end of verse 7. I am sorry that I have made them. Why is that? Well, man is wicked continually. He is evil. He is polluting the earth. It's everything which God did not make it to be. And that pains God, and he's using language which we understand as human beings, that pains him in his heart. Look at our, our text. Three times in verse 11. Three times it speaks about the earth was corrupt. Look at verse 12. God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. When, when God says something once, we listen. When he says something three times, we pay attention because he wants to call our attention. He wants to emphasize it. What does this word corrupt mean? It, it means 
marred or spoiled or ruined or, or rotted. Something which is it's lost all its worth. It's like this vegetable or this fruit which is sitting on your counter for a month while you were going on holidays in the summer and you come back and it's just full of fruit flies and it's just falling apart. It's rotten. It's good for nothing. It has to be thrown out into the compost. And that's the kind of word that the Holy Spirit uses to describe the world. Sin and violence, look at verses 11 and 12, have polluted, and that word violence indicates injustice and cruelty and oppression. Look at verse 13. God said, no, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Why? For the earth is filled with violence through them. The earth is polluted with sexual immorality. The earth is polluted with injustice. The earth is polluted with bloodshed. And that means something. That's important. Turn in your Bible for a moment to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers 35 verse 33. And here the Lord teaches us a little bit about what, what murder and bloodshed does to the land. Numbers 35, verse 33, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. There's no atonement for a land polluted with the guilt of bloodshed and murder. There's no atonement except by the blood of the murderers. And there is generalized violence and murder and cruelty and injustice all through the world. And so that means there is a need to bring total destruction. Look at verse 13 again. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. I've got to get rid of the problem. And so how does he do it? Well, look at verse 17. He says, I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Now, this word flood in verse 17 is a very special word. It's a unique word. The Bible has different ways of talking about floods. When the Bible uses the word here in verse 17... It only ever uses this word to refer to the flood of Noah. It never refers to a regional flood, a local flood. It only ever refers to this flood of Noah. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this word flood in verse 17 is translated as cataclysmos, which is cataclysm in English. Cataclysm. And kata means down, and chlism is related to washing, so it literally means the washing down. God is giving the world a baptism. He's giving the world a scrubbing. It's not a light little spray like when you're watering your flowers or your veggies late in the evening and in the, in the afternoon in the summer with just a, a light little mist. No, this is a powerful Washing, it is a catastrophe, a catastrophic judgment which destroys all flesh that has the breath of life under heaven. Everything on earth shall die. Look at 
7 verse 4. The waters prevailed greatly. They increased greatly. Look at verse 19 of chapter 7. The waters prevailed mightily. All the high mountains under heaven were covered. Look at verse 21 of chapter 7. All flesh died. Look at verse 22 of chapter 7. Everything died. Look at verse 23. He blotted out every living thing. They were blotted out. So what's happening? The world is getting baptized. God is using water to just scrub away the filth and the pollution of sin and immorality and wickedness and violence. Everyone dying. Everyone. Even the little babies. Have you ever thought about that? You see, God didn't say to Noah, get the animals in the ark, plus all the babies because they're innocent. Where are the babies? They die. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me very uncomfortable. That's horrible. God destroyed men, women, and children. And you know why we're horrified by that? Because it's horrible. You know why it's hard to process for us? That God would do something like this? Because we do not understand the sinfulness of sin. We do not understand who we are by nature after the fall, that we are children of wrath, not just when we've grown up and started to do things, sins that are more obvious, but from our very conception. You see, there's no idea in the Scripture of innate innocence or holiness of children. It's the opposite. What does David say in Psalm 51? He says, you know why I killed Uriah, Lord? You know why I stole his wife and committed adultery with her? Because I was born a sinner, Lord. I was conceived in sin, and in iniquity did my mother bring me forth. I don't... I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. And so the world in Noah's time, men, women, and children are reveling in sin and wickedness and rebellion, and the kids that are brought up in this wicked environment take, it, take to it like fish to water. They don't have to be taught. They just pick it up naturally. Deep calls to deep. So we don't understand, brothers and sisters, the, the filth, the depth, the perversion of the sinful nature of fallen man and how offensive it is in the eyes of a holy God. But we also don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand that sin is an offense against his most high majesty. We don't understand that sin pollutes the world that he made to be holy and glorious. You see, we're surprised that people die. You know what we should be surprised about? we should be surprised about that family floating on top of the waters of judgment. That should blow our minds. That's the surprise. How could God do that? How could God spare that group of sinners? Because we know what they deserve. They also deserve the righteous 
judgment of God. And it's not as though God just suddenly arbitrarily and out of the blue came and and destroyed the world. Enoch prophesied many generations ago. He prophesied judgment for those who turned against God. Noah, says the scripture, was a preacher of righteousness and he condemned the world. You know what that means? It means that Enoch and Noah, if not many more people, were prophets of God. They called sinners to repentance. They called sinners to turn from sin. They called sinners to holiness. They called sinners to to love God and to escape and to flee from the wrath to come. But the sinners said no. The sinners said we want to hate God and we want to love sin and we want to love violence. And they got what they chose, didn't they? The wages of sin is death. God's very open about that. He's very clear about that. They got what they chose. And so this terrible, horrifying judgment should make us tremble, brothers and sisters. And one of the things we need to take away from this is that parents who make ungodly and wicked decisions to turn their backs on God they also drag their children with them into perdition. That's a terrifying responsibility. You see it sometimes. It breaks your heart when a a family, a mother and a father are excommunicated and together with them, they're young children. It's a horrifying thing. The horror is because of man's sinful choices. And so here is a, a water of judgment which comes upon the earth. It's no ordinary flood. It is a catastrophe. It is a cataclysm. Now some who study more on the sciences and they, it's a little bit embarrassing if you've got some scientific degrees and you tell your colleagues that you believe in this old book. It's a little bit shameful. So what some Christians do who are in the sciences, they say, well let's try and let's try to work things out here so that what we read in the scripture can fit with what unbelieving scientists interpret in the evidence that is in creation. And so some would argue that this is just a reference to a local flood, just a regional flood, maybe a very, very big one, like a once in a century or once in a 500 years flood, but it's still a local flood. But that's not the way that the Holy Spirit presents it to us. The the text here shows us a flood which is massive, which wreaked havoc worldwide, which brings the planet back to a state of uncreation. There's nothing living on the face of the earth. There's no earth or land out of the water. Everything is covered by water like it was in the first verses of Genesis chapter 1. We go back to the primeval state of the planet. It's a massive work of decreation, of uncreation. God is resetting the creation. And for those who would argue that it has to be a local flood so it can fit with how they see the science, there are a lot of problems with that. Number one, if it's a local flood, why build the ark? This is a massive, massive cargo ship. All the effort and energy he put into that ship, he could have taken his family hopped on a bunch of donkeys and traveled over the mountains far away from this regional flood. He had time. Why collect all the animals? 
Even if the local animals died in that regional flood, there are other animals in the world that can replace them. Why would the ark have to be so big? It's massive, 1.5 cubic feet. If it was only a local flood, you'd only need to save the local types of animals that there are no more of in other places. Why are the birds in the ark? The birds could have flown over the mountains to a safe place. And how could the water have covered the mountains over seven meters deep if it was just a regional flood? I think even somebody in grade three would know that water always finds its own level. So if water's over the top of the mountains in one place, then it can't be way lower in another place. But the, the greatest reason why this cannot be a local regional flood is because of what God says in chapter 9, verse 11. Look at what he says in 9, verse 11. He says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God says, I'm not going to do this again. I'm never going to do this again. So if this is a regional once in a century, once in a 500 years, once in a millennium flood, that means it has happened again. It means God's a liar. And if God's a liar, then God is not God anymore. So it's absolutely impossible as a believer, as a Christian, who receives the word of God as the word of God itself to accept that this is a local flood. It is a worldwide cataclysm or catastrophe. And we get to chapter 8. The water's covering the earth. Everything's dead. There's just Noah and his family floating on the waters. And in verse, chapter, chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. Those are sweet words. And in the midst of judgment, sweet words of grace and mercy what does the bible say in wrath he remembers mercy he provided a way of escape there was a safe place to ride out the flood there was a safe place to come safely through the waters of judgment into the recreated earth and god promised that look at chapter 7 verse 18 in, in the in the bible in 7 verse 18, or sorry, uh, 6 verse 18, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. Now, the word establish could mean set up for the very first time. It can also mean to keep or to maintain. What's going on here? Well, God's saying, I'm going to destroy the world. But you know, I promised back in Genesis 3.15 that there would always be a church. There will always be a holy seed from whom the Messiah will be born one day. And because of that, Noah, I keep my word. I keep my promises. I do what I say. And so I'm going to destroy the whole world. But because I'm a faithful God, because I'm a God who brings salvation, I will save you and your family. I will keep alive the line of the church, the holy seed of the woman. You, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife. God is a God of covenant. God is a God who is faithful to his word, keeps his promises. God is also a God of generations, a God of families. God doesn't get eight random individuals and stuff them into this ark. God saves a family. That's how God works through families. And that's the normal way that God works to save in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But look at verse 19. Look at verse 19 of chapter 6. God's not just worried about the people, but also about the animals 
It's, it's very specific. You've got to bring two of every animal. It's got to be a male and a female. What's the big deal about that? Well, because you need a male and a female for little baby animals. God is already planning for and making provisions for a new world, a new life, for recreation. Even before the judgment, God is planning for mercy, renewal, and restoration. And look at 622. 6 verse 22. What does Noah do? He did all that God commanded him. Throughout this Toledot, we read that a number of times, don't we? That Noah listened. He obeyed. Salvation is not passive. Salvation is by grace, sovereign grace, but it's not passive. Noah doesn't just sit there like a little Lego minifigure waiting for God, the builder, to put him in the ark. Noah participates. Noah works. Noah listens. Noah obeys. God calls to faith and obedience. And repeatedly we read, Noah listened. He did all that God had commanded him. Now, why did Noah listen? Why did Noah obey? Because he was a really good person all by himself? No. Look at verse 8 of chapter 6. Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah obeyed because of the grace of God working in his life. So God remembered. God remembered Noah. But look at 8 verse 1. God remembered all the beasts and the livestock too. That tells us something about our God. God cares about animals. And if God cares about animals, big ones and small ones, then how much more would he not care for you? If he cares for the sparrow, would he not even much more take care of you? Remember what Jesus said. See, God is merciful. God loves to forgive. God brings Noah safely through the waters of judgment. And God loves you in the same way, brother and sister. You have a mark on your forehead which tells you how much God loves you. The mark of your baptism. And that mark tells you that you will not drown in your sins, that you will not be washed away in the judgment of God in your sins. That mark of baptism tells you that your sins are washed away from you. And so Noah was in this ark. He was there for about five months, cooped up. It was frightening. It was difficult. It was, it was challenging to, to know what was going to happen next. When is this all going to end? What is life going to be like after this lockdown in the ark? And then finally... The water stops subsiding, the ark makes landfall, and God begins a process of recreation and renewal. So we've, been, we've seen the historical record, we've seen the world was ruined and rotten, we've seen that God remembered Noah, and now we get to chapter 9, the recreation or the renewal of the earth. And we've mentioned this in, in other sermons, how many times God tells Noah to be fruitful. Do you see that in verse 1 and in verse 7? Count them. Children, count them. Chapter 9, verse 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Now look at verse 7, keep counting. And you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Seven times. What God said to Adam and Eve three times, he says seven times to Noah. He's making a point here. The world is not meant for death. You guys brought the death. 
wasn't my choice. You guys brought it. I want you to live. I want this world full of life seven times. I want this world to be just humming, bursting with life and joy and love. That's what it's for. That's why I made it. And so that Noah and his sons and his descendants can engage in this mandate without being afraid every time it rains that God's going to wash away sinners from the earth again. What does God say in chapter 9, verse 11? He says, I'm not going to destroy the earth again by a flood. And here's the sign of my promise. I'm going to set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That's verse 13 of chapter 9. What's happening here? The, The rainbow, and the children know this, the rainbow, it's like a bow, and if it was strung and there was an arrow in it, which way would the arrow be facing? What would be facing up, wouldn't it? You see, the bow in the clouds is facing towards God, and that means something. It means that when the world is polluted with sin and with violence and with blood, and the world is just crying out for divine judgment upon the sin of man, the bow in the cloud says that the arrow of divine judgment will shoot not at us, but at Him. It will shoot. Christ. But here we are after the flood. All the bad people have been washed off the earth. There's just the holy family, Noah and his sons and their wives. Surely we won't need that, would we? We won't need more judgment, would we? God just erased all the wicked from the earth. He's just started over with the most holy and righteous man of all the world's population. Wouldn't that solve the problem? Well, the answer we have in our text. If you look at 8 verse 21, God is under no illusions that the problem of sin has been solved. 8.21, what does he say? I'm never going to curse the ground again because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man has not changed. And we see it, don't we? We see it right there in chapter 9. What does Noah do? This holy patriarch, he gets drunk. There's the image of God with all of his shame exposed, his nakedness. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Man took fruit. And turn the glory of God into shame and humiliation. That happens here again. Noah takes fruit and turns the glory of God into shame and humiliation. And look at Ham. Ham thinks this is hilarious. He thinks it's so funny. He thinks the shame and the, and the nakedness and the dishonor are really, really funny. And he goes and tells his brothers, laughing behind his hand doesn't honor his father. So the the virus of sin, the contagion of sin is still in the world. So how does this Toledot end? It ends with sin, with shame, and with dishonor. It ends with a curse. It ends with conflict between the three sons from whom the whole world population would come in this new earth. That's the point of this little story here in the end of chapter, in the end of the Toledot. There's going to be conflict 
There still is the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There still is the world and the church. Because who are the descendants of Ham? Well, the descendants of Ham are some of Israel's worst enemies, the Egyptians, for instance, and the Canaanites. The point here is not their ethnicity or their color. The point is that those who hate God and love sin and mock holiness and embrace shame, they will be arrayed against the children of God. That's the point here. The antithesis is still here. There's still the seed of the serpent striving against the seed of the woman. There's still the world against the church. There's still a world of conflict, of enmity, of hatred, of violence, oppression, injustice, disrespect of authority, disrespect of parents, sexual impurity, and immorality. There's still a world polluted with blood. And so something more has to happen. God scrubbed the world vigorously. But that didn't get rid of sin, did it? You see, something has to change in man himself. Man needs redemption. Man needs regeneration. Man needs to be changed and transformed for the recreation, for the renewal of the world to work. And we know that, don't we? We know that that's still true today. Because what do we see when we look around us? 100,000 babies are murdered every year in Canada. The land is polluted with the guilt of murder and bloodshed. And we, the church, what are we, how, how, how are we reacting? We're, we're busy, aren't we? We're busy with our committee meetings and our projects and renovating our houses and planting our gardens and planning our holidays. If the holy ones of God are not horrified and moved through prophetic words and action, what can we expect from the sons of the kingdom of darkness? Brothers and sisters, man needs redemption. He needs to be changed. And that starts with us. And that's why the gospel in our text is so glorious. That bow in the clouds is pointed up. It's pointed at God. Because in Christ, God has taken the wrath that this foul and sinful and violent and corrupt world deserves, that our sin deserves. Just like there was a first global judgment, so there will be a second And just like before the first one, God sent his prophets and called people to repentance, so also now before the second, God is waiting. He's giving time for sinners to come to bow the knee and confess the name, to turn to Christ, to turn from sin. But that waiting is not going to go on forever. The day is coming when judgment will come upon this earth. In an even mightier judgment than the the great flood of Noah. And Peter speaks about that in his second letter, chapter 3. He says, you know what? That judgment is going to be such a fiery judgment. It's not going to be water. It's going to be fire. That the elements will be dissolved. God is going to take this universe, this created universe. He's going to break it down. He's going to break down the elements. And he's going to scrub the subatomic particles. 
He's going to scrub this world with fire of judgment to purify his creation and clean out all the guilt and the pollution and the guck of sin. And that day is coming when that flood of fire will be on the earth. But above that flood of fire, something will be floating. What will it be? The church of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, floating on the clouds with the Lord Jesus above the fires of judgment, the church chosen to everlasting life, the church that Jesus gathers, defends, and preserves by his word and by his spirit, the church that Jesus is building now as we await the flood of fire. The church, which is the building project that he has called us to work on with all our might, not with the leftovers of our time, with all our resources, not just the last few crumbs that happen to be left over at the end of the month, with all our focus, with all our time, that's the building project that counts. The question for us this morning is, are you in this Ark, which is the only safe place in the coming flood of judgment. You know, the only way to be in this ark, which is the church of God, not to have your name on the list, not to be sitting in the bench. The only way to be in this ark is by being united by true faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so are you longing for that? Are you working for that? Are you praying for that to be true for others as well? Are you committed to this building project? Because the flood is coming. And then after that, after that what? Well, look at hymn 73. After that, a glorious sight will appear. The former seas passed away, the former earth and skies, the new Jerusalem will appear prepared as a bride for her husband. God in glory will make his dwelling place with man. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. Pain and grief and death shall be no more. The one who sits on the throne will make everything new, including us and our hearts. And the vile and the faithless ones who defy his will will be flung into the burning lake. And the second death shall die. So, brother and sister, may we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ to know that our names are found and recorded in the book of life.